Well, if you have a Bible this morning, please turn back with me to that passage that we read from 2 Kings uh, chapter 2. And uh, our focus this morning will be on verses 23 through to uh, the end of the chapter, verse 23 through to the end. Now, last week, um, we considered uh, the second miracle that Elisha performed, which was that gracious uh, healing of the waters of Jericho. But uh, today I want to move on to this next passage and this next miracle that Elisha performs. And really what we have before us this morning is the complete opposite of what we saw last week. You recall that last week, those of you who are here, Elisha was in a cursed city. And yet when he left the city of Jericho, he left it blessed. It had been blessed by the Lord. We saw God's great grace in the healing of the waters. However, today, as we shall see in a few moments, Elisha goes to a city which had been wonderfully blessed. And yet the prophet leaves it with a curse. Now, it's worth saying at the very beginning this morning that this particular passage of Scripture has proved a stumbling block to some, and it's proved puzzling for others. Instead of God's great grace, as we saw last time, we're reminded here of the Lord's justice and of the Lord's condemnation. Many people find this passage difficult to compute in their minds. You know, I thought God was a God of love. I thought he was merciful. I thought he was gracious. I thought he was uh, compassionate. And yet here we see, instead of compassion, we see condemnation. Why would God in this passage judge a few harmless little children? Why would he bring down such a, a harsh punishment on a, just a few harmless group of boys and girls that say a few silly things? Well, I want us to look closely at these verses this morning because I think we'll be able to see that this passage uh, that we have before us this morning is in no way contradictory to the passage that was before. God is indeed a God of grace but he's also a God who is just and a God who is holy. And so I trust as we look at these things this morning, the difficulties that we have concerning this passage will be lifted and that God would grant us help this morning and, and understanding. And I want us to notice this morning three things as we look at these verses this morning. And the first thing that I want us to notice is God's house desecrated. God's house desecrated. Now, those of you who've been with us over the past few weeks will remember that Elisha and Elijah had taken this journey uh, together that we read there at the beginning of the uh, chapter. You recall how they'd started in verse 1 in Gilgal, and then they had gone down to Bethel in verse 2, and then from Bethel they had journeyed to Jericho, and then finally they had gone to the River Jordan, crossed the River Jordan when Elijah was then taken up into heaven. And following Elijah's departure, Elisha has now been doing a similar journey, but in reverse. He was on the banks of the river Jordan, there in verse 13, having crossed over the waters. He then tarried in Jericho, we read in verse 18. But now in verse 23, we read that Elisha went up from thence unto Bethel. And so we see this journey in reverse, and he comes up to this place, Bethel. Now, Bethel was about 15 miles from the city of Jericho, and the expression there, went up, 
is helpful because it reminds us that Bethel was situated in the mountains. Whilst Jericho was in the plains at roughly at sea level, Bethel was in the hills and it was located about 3,000 feet above sea level. And so this would therefore have been a tiring and a rugged journey for the prophet to make. But while his journey was no doubt tiring, he was heading to a place that historically had been wonderfully blessed. Last week we noted, didn't we, that Jericho was a cursed city. But now the prophet is heading to a place of God's favour and blessing. The very name Bethel means house of God's. And it takes us right back to the days of Jacob. And you'll recall how in uh, Genesis 28, when Jacob was journeying, how he took stones as as his pillows and he lay down to sleep. And and as he slept, he had that wonderful dream of a ladder that went up to heaven. And you remember how he saw on that ladder angels ascending and descending. And it was there that the Lord spoke to the patriarch and he affirmed the promises that he had given to Abraham and to to Isaac, that his descendants would be like the dust of the earth. And that in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. You remember that Jacob, he awoke on that occasion. He said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And it says that he was afraid and he said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so Bethel was a place that spoke of communion with God, God coming down to earth and communing with his people. And Jacob knew wonderfully that blessing of God as he met with God on that occasion. But since the days of the great patriarch, things had changed dramatically. Instead of the altar of God for the worship of God, idolatry had taken its place. When the, uh, when the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, you'll recall Jeroboam was keen to destroy any desire in his subjects for temple worship. He didn't want his people running off to Jerusalem. And so in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 29, it tells us that he made two golden calves. And he set the one in Bethel, And the other he put in Dan. He put one in the south and one in the north to prevent his people running away. Here's two places you can come and worship. And in that chapter it tells us that this thing became a sin. And to confound matters it tells us that he made a house of high places. It tells us that he made priests of the lowest of the people. He ordained feasts and ceremonies that were supposed to mirror the ones that were being already had been given by God. And it tells us that these things, these feasts, these ceremonies that he ordained, they were devised of his own heart. Such was the change in this place that Hosea, in his prophecy, in chapter 10 and verse 5, he no longer calls it Bethel, but he calls it Beth-Avon. And Beth-Avon means the house of vanity or the house of idols. And so we see that Bethel was no longer this this house of God, but it was now a den of iniquity. It It was a place that spoke of apostasy and rebellion against God. God's house had been desecrated. I think this is a reminder to us that places that were once formerly Bethels can become Beth Avons. Places where God was worshipped can quickly change into dens of iniquity and idolatry and apostasy. 
And we see this, don't we, I think very much in our day, good churches where God's word was preached and the gospel was proclaimed persuasively. They've been forsaken and the old paths have been turned away from. True worship has been replaced with, so often with sentimental entertainments. Reformed practices have been pushed aside for modern methods. Instead of God-honoring praise, we see self-centered feelings. And just like Jeroboam's day, it's a, it's a worship devised from their own hearts. Now we have to admit that so many of these Beth Avons team with worshippers, don't they? People love a church that tickles their ears and plays on their emotions and, and appeals to their senses. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into these, these same uh, practices. And I want to say, friends, this morning, I'm not standing here looking on in judgment. The point I'm trying to make this morning is that we have to take heed lest we fall. We have to search our own hearts. We need to constantly analyze our worship and see whether it stands up to the scrutiny of God's words. Perhaps the question we need to ask ourselves particularly is, is our worship reverence? Is it reverence? Do we come, do we realize that we're coming before a holy God, one who is righteous in all his ways? There's a question that we can ask ourselves every time we come to the house of God. Have we come humbly? Have we come reverently with an eye to praise almighty gods? We have to remember, don't we, that we're God's creatures. We're those whom he has made. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And we come to worship him. We don't come presumptuously. We don't come in this, in this way like they did to the place of Bethel with idolatry. But we come humbly. You know, if you uh, read the Westminster Assembly's directory for public worship, it's, a, it's worth reading. And it talks about how we're to prepare ourselves for worship and how we're to come prepared to the place, to God's house, to worship him. And it says this on, on just about entering the place. It says, enter the assembly not irreverently, but in a grave and seemly manner. And it says that we should take our seats without seeking adoration from others. And you can read the passage, it goes on. But there's this idea that we come to God's house with reverence. Friends, here's, the, I think, the great battleground in churches today. The need for more reverence, worship. Bethel had changed from the house of God to a house of idols. And we need to pray that in our own hearts that we would have Bethels, that it would be a place where God would meet and not a house of idols. And so we see here in the first place God's house desecrated. But notice, secondly, this morning, God's servant mocked. God's servant mocked. Elisha travels then up to this place of apostasy and idolatry. And as he's going up, we're told there in, in verse 23, they came forth little children out of the city and mocked him. Now the phrase there, little children, uh, has a wide range of usage in the scriptures. At times it's employed to refer to very young children who are just infants, but it's also used to describe young lads and even teenagers and even older. Just to give you one very clear example of this, in Genesis 37, it tells us that Joseph was 17, and then it describes him there in, uh, in Genesis 37, and 
verse 2, it describes him with the same phrase. It says there, uh, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock of his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah. And that phrase, the lad, is exactly the same as we have children here in 2 Kings chapter 2. So it was used to describe Joseph when he was 17 years old. And uh, later on in his life, we remember how he goes into prison and he meets there the butler and the baker. Well, later on, when uh, the, the baker is speaking to Pharaoh, he uses exactly the same description. He describes him as a young man. And it's exactly the same Hebrew word that we have here for little children. And at that point in Joseph's life, he was 28. So we can see that this phrase here, this little children phrase, it covers a wide range of, of ages. And it seems to me that what we have in this passage is not a group of young children, little children playing out, uh, out on the streets, as it were, of Bethel. But more likely, this is a, a gang of teenagers, young lads of the city who've come out to meet Elisha. And it says that there, doesn't it? You'll notice that it says they came forth out of the city as Elisha was traveling up. Elisha has yet to reach the city, but as he approaches, they come out to meet him. They see him from afar off coming uh, to Bethel, by the way, and they come out of the city to intercept him. In other words, there's a deliberate intent here on the part of these young people. This is not children just hanging around in the streets, kicking a ball about, and Elisha walks past, so they say a few comments at him. No, they've come out with, with purpose. And verse 23 says that they mocked him. This is what their intent was, to come and mock Elisha, the man of God. And they say unto him, go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. So these children, they hurl this abuse at him. And we have to say this is not just sort of funny jibes, giving this man a little bit of stick as he walks past. Well, there's a, a bald man, so we're going to just cast a few insults towards him. And this, is a, this is a gang of young people who are showing malice and deliberate scorn. And we know this because of the fact that Elisha turns around to address them. And he speaks these words of cursing to them. And the fact that he has to turn around suggests that they've snuck up behind him. And you notice that their mockery falls into two parts here. You notice at the end of the phrase they describe him as thou bald heads. Now... Presumably Elisha was a bald man or he was beginning to go bald at any rate. And baldness in the scripture is, is often regarded as a kind of disgrace or a reproach. It was often um, particularly associated with the awful disease of leprosy. And these youths pick up on this feature and decide to mock him for it. It was scornful, it was contempt towards him, it was unkind, it was disparaging and abusive. But above all, it was sinful. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. Solomon writes in Proverbs 17 and verse 5 that whosoever mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker. And there's a point that we need to make here this morning that, friends, we should never make disparaging comments about others, especially about things that someone cannot do anything about. Elisha couldn't help being bald. He couldn't help the fact that he's, he'd lost his hair. And, and I think we need to stress home this point that making disparaging comments is sinful. And particularly, let me say to the young people, to the boys and girls here this morning, it's unkind. 
to laugh at others. It's sinful to laugh at the way people look. Maybe friends at school do this and at times they think it's funny to pick on someone. Pick on them because they're wearing glasses. Pick on them because they've got braces on their teeth. Whatever it might be, because they dress differently. Whatever it, whatever it is that, that you know, your friends encourage you to pick on someone about, we're not to do it. God tells us these things are wrong. David says, blessed is the man that sitteth not in the seat of the scornful. We're not to mock others for the way they look. But the mockery of these children goes much further than that because in the first part of their taunt, they say, go up to him. And at first we could say, well, they're just encouraging him to go up to Bethel. They're just, go on, go up to Bethel, you bald man. Surely that's what they're saying to him here. But I I think there's more to this first part of their mockery than perhaps meets the eye to begin with. Because the word that they use for going up here is the same that's used in verse 11. You notice in verse 11, when Elijah and Elisha had crossed the Jordan, and it tells us that uh, as they talked, this chariot of fire appeared and horses of fire, and it parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. It's the same phrase. Go up or went up. Elijah went up into heaven. And it seems to be a reference to that great event. Presumably this was something that was told throughout the region. Did you hear about Elijah, that prophet? You remember him, the fiery great prophet? He disappeared. And people watched it. He went up into heaven. And this gang of of young lads, they clearly viewed Elijah's ascension into heaven as either some event to be disbelieved or something to be despised. Either way, they were ridiculing and mocking the work of God. They were saying to Elisha, go on in, Elisha, you know, where's your chariots? Where's the whirlwind to take you? Go on, go up baldy into heaven. And so they mock Elisha. And you can see that these taunts were calculated. This was deliberate impiety. No doubt these youths have copied their parents. They've been schooled in idolatry and wickedness. They've been trained up not in the ways of God, but in sin. And so we find these young people from Bethel scorning and mocking Elisha, the servant of God, coming out deliberately, taunting him. Go on then, go up. I think this is a reminder to us that God's people will always find hostility in this world. Remember how David was mocked and the people said to him, go on, flee as a bird to the mountain. Go on, fly away. Even our Saviour was mocked and scorned, wasn't he, and hated. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said, I came not to send peace, but a sword. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, we're told there'll always be this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent's. There'll always be this battle between the two and the seed of the serpent hates and is hostile towards the seed of the woman. Remember what the Saviour said in John chapter 15 verse 19. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The world hates the Christian. It cannot tolerate the followers of Christ. It wants the Christian to comply with its ideas. It wants us to adopt their thoughts. It wants us to copy their actions. It hates that that quiet, peaceable life of righteousness because it condemns them. 
We read, don't we, that men love darkness rather than light. They don't want to be disturbed out of their carnal security. They don't want a Christian preaching at them through their life. Elisha here faces hostility of this godless Bethel, and so do Christians in this world. That passage that we read earlier in Luke chapter 6, you remember what it said in verse 26? Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false to the prophets. And Christian, we must expect hostility from this unchristian world. We will be hated, we'll be scorned, we'll be mocked, just like Elisha. But Jesus, you remember what he says on the Sermon on, on the Mount? He says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Believer, you're blessed when you're persecuted and reviled by this world. And of course, what does Christ say in response? What should our response be? He says, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And so as Elisha has mocked here, it reminds us that as God's people, we will be mocked and scorned too. Well then this morning, we, we've seen these two things, God's house desecrated and God's servants mocked. I want you to notice lastly with me in these verses, God's justice executed. God's justice executed. These youths, as they come out and they mock the prophets of God, they have this contempt for Elisha and uh, this insolence and disdain, but that disdain did not go unnoticed. Because we have to remember that when God's servants are mocked, it's really a mockery of God's. The Lord Jesus Christ, you remember how he said that he that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And so what these youths did in mocking Elisha was ultimately blasphemy against God's. And Elisha, the man of God, he turns back and he looks upon them. He looks on this mob of, of sinful youths and he does so with a holy indignation. And then he curses them in the name of the Lord's. He doesn't merely reprove them or tell them off. But under divine direction, he curses them. Now, this wasn't Elisha being rash. This wasn't Elisha just seeking some revenge upon these, these lads who come out to, you know, to mock him. This is not personal revenge upon them. He doesn't lose his call and sort of explode and just curse them. Now, this is under the divine direction of God. Remember what Proverbs tells us, the curse causeless shall not come. Now, this was a, a curse that came from God himself, and we know that because the Lord responds to this curse, and he responds in a rather remarkable way. We notice there how he sends two female bears that come out of the woods. And these two female bears, we're told, took 42 children and, and tore them. Now, it doesn't say specifically that they died, but that's a very logical assumption. 42 young lives were lost because of their sin. Now this was the judgment of God. It wasn't Elisha who did this, but it was the Lord's. Just as it was the Lord who, who brought the plagues, not Moses. Just as it was the Lord who struck down Ananias and Sapphira, not, not Peter himself. God's servants there were simply the instruments used to pronounce the judgments. And here we see these two bears appear and they come and they kill these, these 42 young people and it was a miraculous thing. 
You know, only extreme hunger or the protection of their cubs would make bears behave in such a way. And yet to kill 42, this is something supernatural. This was something unnatural. This was a special divine visitation. God had used these two bears to bring down his sword of divine justice. And what it shows to us is that God takes sin seriously. In the previous miracle, we saw that God was a God of grace. But here our attention is drawn to the truth that God is also just and he's holy and he's righteous. Remember what we're told, he is angry with the wicked every day. Habakkuk tells us he's of purer eyes than to behold the evil. And canst not look on iniquity. And the point is this, that sin is serious. And not only does it show us that God takes sin seriously, but he takes even the sins of young people seriously. Boys and girls here this morning, especially, do you know that God sees all your sin and he takes it seriously? But this passage also shows us that God cannot leave sin unpunished. And it reminds us that there will always, there is coming a day, a day of judgments. A day when God will bring down that sword of divine justice on those who have never repented of their sin, those who've never turned to Christ in faith. And friends, this morning do we realize that we must either face the punishment for our sins ourselves or someone else must suffer in our place. I believe it this morning, we can praise God, can't we, that our sins have not been held to our account, but they were laid on the account of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We deserve to endure that, that sword of divine justice. But instead, God has wonderfully pierced the soul of his son at Calvary. And friends, this should continue to uh, continually amaze us and, and fill us up with praise and thankfulness to God. Christ died for our sins, Paul tells us. Christ took our place. He gave himself for us. Paul could say, couldn't he, in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And think back, friends, here this morning, how many times in your life you mocked the truths of God, just like these young people did. Think how many times you showed scorn towards the things of God and to God's words. Think back to the many sins that you committed when you were a child and when you were a young person. And for each one of those sins, it would have been just, wouldn't it, and right for God to call a bear to come out of the woods and tear you into a thousand pieces. But he didn't. Instead, he was gracious to you. He was long-suffering to you. And he brought you to that point when you came and you trusted in Jesus Christ. It's the mercy, it's the grace of God. And so you see, even in this passage, we see something of God's mercy and grace, even while we see condemnation and justice. You know, friends, as I look at this incident this morning, I don't see a passage that contradicts the rest of God's word. I still see here a God of love. I see, instead, I see one that reminds me of his goodness. It reminds me even of, of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We should praise God this morning for the gift of eternal life that comes and is found only in his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> let me just say, though, this morning as I close, if you don't know this life, let me warn you that one day God will execute his justice on you. That day is coming. and It's a sure day. It will happen. 
And you will have to face the just consequences, just as these youths did. You will have to face the just consequences for your sin. But friends, it doesn't need to be that way. You don't have to wait to that day to, to, to know the peace of God. But you can trust in Christ. You can trust in Christ today and know the peace of God in your life. Know that your sins have been dealt with. That there is no condemnation for you. But it's all on Christ. And you can do that by coming and trusting in the only saviour of sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came to save his people from their sins. Well, I trust that all of us here this morning are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer under the curse that we know God's great blessing and grace in our lives.